Labyrinths is brought to you by Knox Robinson Productions. Please consider becoming a patron. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to Labyrinths ad-free. Visit patreon.com slash Knox Robinson to learn more. Just drop, Father, have a chance to say something. Go ahead, sir. You son. In a courtroom, we, we, try, we don't use profanity, but if you have some words that you would like to say, I would like to give you the opportunity to say them. I would ask you to, as part of the sentencing, to grant me five minutes in a locked room with this <laughs> demon. I have would a feeling. Would you do that? I, I, that is not yes how our... No, sir, I can't. Would you give me one minute? You know that I can't do that. That's not how our legal system. Feeling lost? Then you're in the right place. I'm Amanda Knox. And I'm Christopher Robinson. And while we're working hard preparing for season two, We've got another fascinating bonus episode of Of Labyrinths. The voice you just heard was that of a father whose three daughters were sexually abused by USA Gymnastics national team doctor Larry Nasser. The scandal broke in 2016 when two former gymnasts accused Nasser of sexual abuse. As more details emerged in 2017, the USA Gymnastics sex abuse scandal ballooned, with accusers describing an emotionally abusive environment with gymnastics coaches and officials turning a blind eye to Nasser's actions. Ultimately, the CEO of USA Gymnastics faced criminal charges, as did officials at Michigan State University. But the face of that scandal and the source of the most harm came from Larry Nasser. Nasser was accused of assaulting at least 265 young women and girls as far back as 1992, at times inserting his fingers into their vaginas and anuses under the guise of performing a necessary medical procedure. The FBI also found 37,000 images of child pornography on his computer. The charges piled up in several jurisdictions, just as the Me Too movement was exploding, leading Nasser to file one guilty plea after another. And the judges hammered him. He was sentenced to 60 years in federal prison, just for the child pornography charge. If he's alive on January 30th, 2068, he'll be 104 years old when he's released from federal custody and immediately transferred into state prison, where he will serve another 40 to 175 years for the 10 counts of sexual assault of minors he pled guilty to. Nasser will die in prison. In the meantime, he's already been assaulted himself as soon as he was placed in GenPop at UCP Tucson. And isn't that what he deserves? After all, he's a monster, right? And who would defend a monster? We wanted to find out. So we traveled to Michigan to speak with a group of criminal defense attorneys. It was there that we met Shannon Smith who, along with Molly Blythe, represented Larry Nasser through his guilty pleas and sentencing hearings. 
Smith and Blythe specialize in sexual assault cases, and as such, most of their clients are men, and it leads people to question their motives. How can you be a woman? How can you be mothers and do this job? How can you represent someone like Larry Nasser? Why even have a trial or, you know, why waste taxpayer money on a defense? That's something that I think we hear a lot. That's attorney Molly Blythe. I suppose I can say once those are the things that start being said, then it's almost like a totalitarian state at that point where people are being prejudged on how horrific accusations are. I find it hard to believe that anybody would support a system where you're not entitled to due process and a fact-finding system with trials. If we let our emotions drive us, we're going to end up convicting innocent people. We're going to end up getting the wrong results. That's Molly's partner, attorney Shannon Smith. No matter who the client is or what the case is, it is really important for defense lawyers to be zealous advocates and work hard for their clients and try. And the day that defense lawyers stop doing that is the day they should fold the cards and stop practicing. I wonder if people recognize that when they say someone doesn't deserve a trial or doesn't deserve a defense, what they're essentially saying is, let's lynch this guy. Right. In our initial conversations, Shannon told us that whenever they take on a client, they have to believe in them. But what does that mean for someone like Larry Nasser? Not, it turns out, that they must believe he's perfectly innocent. Sometimes, she said, it means they believe their client is overcharged or that they did something, but not everything they're accused of. Our job, Shannon said, is not to try to get everyone acquitted but to get the right results. And sometimes, like with Nasser, that means entering a guilty plea. What it shouldn't mean is facing a barrage of hate as defense counsel when your client is sentenced for the crimes he pleads guilty to. But as you heard at the top of this episode, emotions ran high in this case. We're going to get into that with Shannon and Molly shortly. But first, we need to spend a moment talking about what exactly Nasser did that so inflamed his victims and their families. Many of the abuse allegations resulted from a procedure called pelvic floor physical therapy that Nasser performed on the young gymnasts, supposedly to relieve pain via internal vaginal massage. It may sound crazy, but as the New York Times put it, it wasn't entirely implausible. Pelvic floor physical therapy can be used to relieve, quote, pelvic pain by accessing muscles that cannot be reached any other way. The therapy has been tested and found effective in several small studies and clinical trials published in peer-reviewed medical journals, end quote. And as Shannon pointed out to us, these were high-functioning Olympic-bound gymnasts. A lot of these girls were practicing 8 to 10 hours a day, putting so much pressure on their bodies that they had unique health issues that needed advanced treatment. For years, Nasser performed that pelvic floor therapy and was thanked for it. According to Shannon, many of the patients went back for repeat therapy with their parents in the room. They were barely able to walk before the procedure and much improved after. Even after his guilty plea, 
Shannon says some of the gymnasts wrote them to say they understood he did something wrong, but he'd also saved their gymnastics career. So was Nasser's pelvic floor therapy necessary? The New York Times interviewed experts who said that such a treatment should be rare, is usually performed by female doctors, and is always done with gloves on. Never as Nasser did it with bare hands. They did note that gymnasts are prone to pelvic floor problems, but that especially with girls under 18, it should be a last resort. It's not hard to see why a parent would feel betrayed, why that distraught father would lunge at Nasser across the desk. We could tell you all the great reasons you should support Labyrinths on Patreon, including ad-free episodes and exclusive patron-only content. But why not hear it direct from a listener? Hi, my name is Allie, and I joined Labyrinths Patreon because there's nowhere else that you can explore the ebbs and the flows of humanity with the kind of truth and grace that you can get with Labyrinths. There really isn't anywhere else you can get that. Visit patreon.com slash Robinson. There are so many legit ways to look at this case, and perhaps the most important one is to view it from the perspective of the victims. That was in part what led Judge Aquilina to bring in over 150 women to give their victim statements. But we can learn other things from viewing this case from the perspective of the defense. So think of what follows not as the story of Nasser and his victims, but the story of two women who defended a man who did horrible things, and in the process were accused of betraying their sex, as if the only way to be a woman in this case was to want to lynch this man. Molly, Shannon, welcome. Let's just jump in. One sort of interesting nuance point that you mentioned that got a lot of flack during this time was your comment about suggestibility, this idea that there were a great number of young women who only after Nasser pled guilty and was found to be in possession of child pornography came forward and said they felt victimized and that prior to all of this stuff coming out, they had had the same kinds of treatments that these other young women had, but hadn't felt victimized. And I can imagine putting myself in the shoes of those young women and looking back on a medical treatment I might have received and been like, wait a second, he was like into child pornography and he was all up in my genitals? Holy crap, like now I'm feeling whole new feelings about what happened to me. And on the other side, it's this like interesting legal question because we think about punishing people in part as a measurement of how much they've damaged other human beings. But if other human beings weren't damaged until somebody is brought to court, how do we deal with that legally? Well, it's a difficult question, and I, I don't know the answer to it. But there were girls who, when Nasser was first accused, took 
pizza and food to his house and said, we support you hundred percent. We know what these girls are saying and we hate that this is happening and we're here to support you and brought him dinner and then met with a civil lawyer and suddenly were the most outspoken victims against him. So it always was very blurry. What is the motivation? What's driving it? Do they really believe it? Do they not really believe it? And I do think there were some who did really believe it after the fact. And I did feel sad for some that had lived these perfectly productive lives. And suddenly they started looking back on things and said, well, that's why I drank when I was in college because I was trying to numb my feelings. And it's like, well, maybe you drink in college because a lot of people drink in college. Or people would look back and say, you know, now I know that's why I failed out of my biology class my senior year of high school. And all of a sudden, it's like hindsight was 2020. I almost felt bad because you could tell they were driving themselves crazy. And I don't know what you do with that, but I can see where they're coming from. I don't know how to rectify it in my own brain, but I do believe there were some people that were victimized just because of the way it came out, the way it unfolded. And part of that is because some of the people had their parents in the room watching everything that happened to them. Some of the people were videotaped while Nasser was doing the procedures to them so that they could take the videotapes to their own doctors and have their doctors learn from the video and do the same procedure. So it makes me think that with at least some of the alleged victims, there was not something criminal going on because how would he be videotaping it and doing it in front of the parents and teaching other doctors how to do it? There, there were just a lot of things that didn't make sense. But whether things made complete sense or not, the evidence of Nasser's wrongdoing was overwhelming and he pled guilty. There was nothing unusual in that. What was unusual was the sentencing hearing led by Judge Rosemarie Aquilina. In an unprecedented decision, with the cultural momentum of Me Too behind her, Judge Aquilina invited more than 150 of Nasser's victims to read victim impact statements over the course of a week. But beyond this, it was Judge Aquilina's attitude that made her a hero to many waving the Me Too flag and to Shannon and Molly, the enabler of vitriol in the courtroom. As Shannon first described it to us, Judge Aquilina effectively invited people to stand up and berate Nasser, more in keeping with a daytime talk show than the decorum one expects in a courtroom. At one point, Judge Aquilina said, our constitution does not allow for cruel and unusual punishment. If it did, I might allow someone or many people to do to him what he did to others. From Shannon and Molly's perspective, Judge Aquilina did not act like an impartial judge, but like someone relishing their power to punish. As much as it was my honor and privilege to hear the sister survivors, it is my honor and privilege to sentence you. Because, sir, you do not deserve to walk outside of a prison ever again. Sir, I'm giving you 175 years, which is 2,100 months. I just signed your death warrant. That attitude is highly unusual for a judge, and it led to a highly charged courtroom environment. 
Molly told us that when she objected to statements targeted at the two of them, Judge Aquilina did not say what most judges would say. We're not here to attack defense counsel. Keep your comments directed at the defendant. Instead, she said, go ahead and say what you have to say. Defense counsel have thick skin. As someone who spent more time in courtrooms than anyone should have to, I can tell you that this is not just unorthodox, but inappropriate. And yet, Judge Aquilina received accolades for her behavior. And from Shannon's perspective, she seemed to relish the attention. At one point, during another case they took before her bench, showing the two of them screenshots of all the merch you could buy with her face on it, the t-shirts, the action figures. Meanwhile, the hatred for Nasser she stoked spilled over onto Shannon and Molly. They were criticized for taking notes during the victim statements, as if they weren't paying attention. They were criticized for representing him at all. They were criticized as women for how they looked. One commenter saying Shannon looked like meatloaf. They received death threats. I think the Nasser case, it took everything to a new level that I had never experienced before. I had to overcome the fact that I want to be liked and accepted by other people. And I had to kind of come into my own that if I'm going to keep doing this job the way I need to do it, I cannot read the comments. I cannot worry about what other people think. And I have to trust that the people who know me and love me are the only people I need in my life. And that was really hard for me because a lot of the other work I do involves things like sexting for juvenile clients and representing teenagers accused of sexual assault. And a lot of people applaud my work and say, you're doing great work for young people and these kids should not be on the sex offender registry for sexting and great work. And this was one of the first times in my career where it was just the complete opposite and I was really hated and I realized what it really meant to be a defense lawyer. Shannon wasn't there for part of the Ingham County sentencing. Shannon was typically the attorney sitting at council table and Shannon and I both have very dark hair. And a lot of these people who were at the sentencing and making statements hadn't been at court ever before to see who either of us were. So I don't know that they even knew that there were two females on the defense team. Oh, yeah. And in the news, they would always write, uh, Attorney Shannon Smith sits with Larry Nasser, and it would be a picture of Molly. So I don't think people knew that it was both of us. I'm not surprised that you felt the hate, especially when people thought you were me. How did the hatred directed towards you spill over into your personal life? It made me scared because I have four children and I had to sit back and really think about, do I want my children to be exposed to this? Do I really want to keep doing this kind of work? We had to increase our security at our office. We had to increase our security at our house. We had to file police reports every day for a while because of the threats we were getting. And my husband and I had really long talks about it and decided that I do want to keep doing this and it is important. I mean, I love being a defense lawyer, but I can see why a lot of people will stop practicing criminal defense because sometimes it does get to a point where it just doesn't feel worth it. Wow. How do you think the way that this story has been told doesn't match up with the way that you think this story should have been told? One of the things that really struck me 
was that a lot of people turn towards hating Nasser in a way and talking about how they knew he was a pedophile and they knew he was doing something wrong and they knew it all along when that wasn't the case. And what really happened was people liked him. They appreciated the treatments he did. And I think that aspect of it needed to be shown more so that other people could learn how to identify situations in the future where maybe somebody's being manipulated and that sexual predators are not people who are mean or abusive. They're people that victims trust. They're people the victims like. And I remember during one of the hearings, a prosecutor asked one of the girls on the stand, aren't you so mad at him? Or how do you feel about this now? Expecting her to say, I hate him and he's awful. And she said, you know what? I'm really sad because I really liked him. And I'm just really sad this happened. And she was having a hard time because she had true sadness for it because she had a connection to Nasser. And I think when you look at how people are victimized and how sex abuse works and the dynamics of it, it's important to realize that it's close relationships where people love each other, where this happens. I have never had a sex abuse case where a kid was randomly grabbed off the street and abused. Every case our office has had was people who knew each other and people who were oftentimes and most often really close to one another. So I think the story got missed in that regard and that's an important thing that people need to know is that the people you need to watch out for the most with your children are the people you feel the closest to and the people you trust the most. I think that what Shannon was just saying is where some of the hate comes from, because I think a lot of the families did feel, you know, they had really, really been betrayed. And I think that's because of the relationship they had had with Nasser leading up to this. One thing that was really surprising to me during the Nasser case was the amount of hatred directed at us, given that this was a plea. This was not, we're going to trial, we're going to make you all testify, you know, for 14 days and um, go on and on. This was a plea where I think everybody kind of knew what was going to happen afterwards. So a lot of the times people will call it a trial, but there was no trial. I'm curious how this saga has changed you, or if it's altered your view of humanity or of your own role within the criminal justice system. For me, it's strengthened my role in the criminal justice system. It has thickened my skin. It's made me a lot tougher. It's helped me grow professionally to not care what others think about me and to understand that to do a good job, I can't care. It has made me realize that my role is so important in the criminal justice system that this is the kind of work I want to do from now forward. And recently, our prosecutor in the county I live in was arrested. And a lot of people have asked me if I would consider running for prosecutor for the county I live in. And that is absolutely not where my heart is. I know that now after doing Nasser. So if anything, I learned a lot from doing the Nasser case. At the time, it felt like hell. It made me so sick. I was in the hospital with heartburn issues. I ultimately had to have surgery over it. 
And part of me had to change my lifestyle to deal with stress better because if I didn't find a better way to do it, I was going to kill myself at an early age just by the amount of stress I was feeling. So this case forced me to change a lot of the ways I do business, a lot of the ways I handle my cases, the ways I take time off now, the ways I spend time with my family, how much sleep I get at night. And I think in the end, it has left me to be a better person and a better lawyer. Yeah, I think for me, similar to Shannon, professionally, those days at the sentencings were probably some of like the most difficult in my career. But I think what it taught me is that no matter how bad it does feel in the moment, this too shall pass. And I think that that's been helpful for me to realize that, you know, anything coming up then in the future doesn't quite seem as daunting. This is great, guys. Thank you so much for taking the time. Do you have any final thoughts that you wanted to share about this whole experience with us? Amanda, I just want to thank you so much for having us on. It was almost a little bit therapeutic to be able to tell our side of it and be able to get it off our chest. Molly and I talk about it often, and I really thank you for doing this piece. Oh, Yeah, thank you so much for having us. I do appreciate it. I'm just so sorry that you had to go through so much trauma just to do... To provide a constitutionally guaranteed service. I think it's worth just sort of hammering on that. Like this is, it's in the constitution, you know? Well, and one of the other best parts that's come out of this is we found our people and you're our people because you get it and you've been through it too. And we really appreciate you guys for showing that. Final question. This podcast is called Labyrinths and it's about the weird winding paths that people's lives take um, and how you end up in places that you didn't expect. So I'm wondering, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, where did you expect to be? How is it different from where you are now? And looking into your own future, do you have expectations about where you'll be? And do you trust them? I never would have thought I'd be a criminal defense lawyer. I never would have thought I would specialize in criminal sexual conduct cases. And I'm not sure 20 years ago, I really understood what a lawyer did. Yeah, I also would have never anticipated being a criminal defense attorney. I feel like all throughout law school, I wanted to be a prosecutor. And I think it's really important to be a check on the system. And I do enjoy the work. So I also don't really know what the future holds, but I assume we'll be doing something similar. Okay, so recap. So I think the thing that's interesting about this case is Nasser, knowing that he was a pedophile, did not take himself out of the position of abusing young women. It's not like he can put his pedophilia aside when he's performing pelvic exams on 12-year-olds. Right. The question you asked earlier about the male gynecologist where you're just like, it's a little suspicious. <laughs> um, I mean, and you went to one the other day. And I had a moment when that happened where I was like, I usually have a female gynecologist, mister. <laughs> right. And like, how would you feel if you found out that later that night, that male gynecologist was masturbating while thinking about the exam he'd done on you? That would 
fuck me up a little bit. <laughs> right? It would be creepy. It would be creepy. Um, now, was he perfectly professional in the moment? Yep. Yeah, he was. If the behavior is perfectly professional, you walk away from the encounter going, that was a professional encounter. A doctor examined me. End of story. Then you find out a piece of information about his internal desires. Now you feel violated. Yes. So it's almost like the Nasser thing is, it's an interesting way that feelings of victimhood can arise when the background mental state of the person doing the action is what creates the feeling of violation. Right. Intent matters. And I completely understand how hundreds of young women came forward to say, I feel betrayed. All the young women in that courtroom who came to give victim statements were very justifiably angry. I think that an aspect of the case that doesn't really get talked about is how Nasser did not contest the allegations and he agreed to hear every single person's statement. And he did, whether you believe it's sincere or not, make an apology in his statement. After he made that statement, the judge took her copy of his statement and very dismissively just tossed it to the side and went on to say with relish that she was sentencing him basically to death and that she was doing it with pleasure and with privilege. And I was just shocked. That kind of language from a judge, it sort of revealed how the judge felt about her duty as a judge in, you know, punishing the wicked. I mean, I think it's common for people to think that compassion and empathy are not to be universally doled out. Neither of us are Christians, but, you know, what Jesus would say is that compassion and empathy are universal. Everyone deserves compassion, turn the other cheek, etc. People in the real world don't operate that way. Yeah, I think the thing that really, like, struck me was how much it seemed that nobody cared whether Nasser admitted fault or not, whether or not he said he was sorry. I think with the number of victims in this case, people tend to think whatever you say, whatever statement you could make is irrelevant because you did it over and over and over. And here's another one. And, the, and that's part of why probably the judge said, and let's just have another one. And let's just have another one. Hmm. There's so many victims. Every time there was another victim was a chance for you to turn back and you didn't. So for you to say, I'm sorry now, maybe people just found it impossible to believe that, impossible to give any credit to those statements. I think the big missing focus in all this is that he's the object of hatred, but the hatred comes from somewhere. Someone has to hurl the hatred. And I think that people don't think about what unleashing that anger and hatred does to us. And I think people sort of blindly assume that that effect is a positive cathartic one that letting those victims come out there one after another to berate him could only be good. And it's not so obvious to me that that could only be good for the victims. The thing that didn't make sense was the judge feeling that her role was to be the, like, clenched fist of this collective group of young women. She took this as an opportunity to be a symbol for a new way of treating 
victims in the criminal justice system and making victims a priority and making retribution a priority. I'm not saying that Nasser didn't deserve to hear all those victim statements. He did deserve to hear them all. And I'm not saying that he didn't deserve to be sentenced greatly. He deserved to be sentenced greatly. And indeed, other judges also handed down very large, heavy sentences to Nasser, but they didn't do so with the relish of this particular judge. I remember feeling uncomfortable seeing those images of her flicking his statement aside and saying, I have the honor and privilege to sentence you to what is the equivalent of death. Anyone who has that kind of power over another human being should not relish that. That is a very serious thing that you can do to another human being, no matter who they are. And it is not your job to get off on it. Yeah. I don't think that this judge should be getting off on sentencing him to life in prison. The intent matters. Done. Done. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing more to say. You're like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that bonus episode kind of expanded past its boundaries, didn't it? Yeah, well, it's a complicated issue. Next week, maybe something a little lighter? Stay tuned for season two. And in the meantime, get lost with us. Find us on Twitter, at Amanda Knox. At Man Under Bridge. At KnoxRobinson.com. And please, subscribe, rate, and review us. We're jonesing for stars like Super Mario. (laughs) This episode was written by us, edited and sound designed by Chandler Mays, with theme music by Josh Budo Karp. Captain's Log, Stardate 89361.5. We've encountered a fascinating alien civilization. The people of Patreon Prime are humanoid in appearance, but possess vastly greater degrees of nuance, compassion, and intelligence than any race we have so far encountered. But what is perhaps most striking is their generosity. Captain, the warp core is going critical. Warning. Divert all energy to patreon.com slash Knox Robinson.